0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily and your Friday morning long-form episode here on the podcast. Trevor Hall, your host, here with you. Another great conversation to air for you to end our week. I finally caught up with author of The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, author Mr. Christopher Leonard. Him and I connected for a lengthy conversation really about the evolution of his research and writing the book and really some of his thoughts on what we've learned from the Federal Reserve in the last 20, 30, 40 years. A spectacular conversation with Chris. So I really hope you listen to it in its entirety. And if you haven't, I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Again, the Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American economy. Special thank you to our sponsors, Rio 2, Arizona Sonoran Copper, Western Copper and Gold, and Integra Resources for your continued support of the podcast. Uh, We had a lot of content out throughout the week. You can always go back to miningstockdaily.com to listen to any of the episodes we publish throughout the week and also get some of the show notes from the morning briefing. Uh, And also, if you wouldn't mind, Leave a review of the show on the network you use to catch your podcast for Mining Stock Daily. It just does us a tremendous amount of good getting in front of new investors during these crazy times. So let's jump into my conversation with Chris. Again, fantastic conversation. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Be well. This is an interview that I've just been so excited to not only record and uh, get out to the listeners, but it's really uh, with somebody that I've been wanting to speak with, actually, for the better part of two months now. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I finished up his book. He wrote The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. His name is Christopher Leonard. And uh, Chris, um, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh,
0: before we kind of get into this big conversation we're going to have about the book, the you kind know, of the ethos of writing this book, and really how it pertains to what everything that's going on now in the global economy, not only the economy in America. Uh, I got to give you big kudos on writing a book about the Federal Reserve and the American <laughs> economy that is not filled with nuances. That is easily readable for anyone to understand the significance of these stories. Uh, I think uh, we need more things like this so people are more aware of how this institution was developed, formed, and what it has done throughout its lifetime, but most specifically what it has done in the last 40 years. So honestly, I don't know how you did it. like how, how do you how' does your writing how do you uh, your, your writing style, how do you describe it?
1: Um, well, God, uh, narrative nonfiction, meaning it, it's always rooted with a story. I, mm. I find it's much easier to follow a human story than it is to just sort of digest concepts like a textbook. Um, so the writers I really admired would usually tell a story. And that's why I started to, because telling a story helps you communicate to a broad audience and helps um, people digest things without knowing it. My My goal with this book was to write a story that you could read when you're at a hotel room on a business trip and tired, but you could still stick with it. And then at the end, it turns out you've internalized these truths about how the Federal Reserve operates and what it's done uh, kind of without even realizing it. But um, anyway, so I describe it as narrative nonfiction. And and at first I use narrative to help keep readers engaged and tell stories. But the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that actually narrative is a a critical tool to help understand how things work and how we got to where we are today. I mean, history is a story, right? Beginning, middle, end. And it's very important to understand the human element to what happens in our society, along with the institutional elements. So that's a long ways of, of describing why I typically write narratives.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more where you came from this financial journalism? I mean, there's very few, Financial journalists, um, and very few people that want to write books about finance and the and economics. Uh, Where does this where where does this come from for you? Okay, look. Part of it is
1: accidental. Um, I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. I really love journalism. I discovered it in college at the University of Missouri. And then, you know, uh, God's honest truth, 1999, I was working nights at a newspaper and a a full-time job opened up during the day and it was to be a business reporter. And I thought, my God, would I rather not have a job or would I rather cover business? Because business seemed so boring to me. But thank goodness I took that job because, you know, I've come to, I mean, jeez. Our economic system affects everybody. And if you, you know, a, a journalist's primary job is to describe the uh, the political and economic system to readers, to help American citizens understand what's going on in our country, who is making the decisions, why they're making the decisions, how it affects us. And, and writing about the economic realm of our life is vitally important. You know, I mean, there's so much high-profile journalism around covering the White House or mm-hmm. at a metro paper covering City Hall or crime. All that stuff is important, but covering the economic structures of our society is equally important. So that's why I've stuck with this, and and I'm full in obsessed with covering our our economic system.
0: Uh, so Missouri grad, uh, I'm a Nebraska grad. I remember the Big Twelve days. Uh, Nebraska Journalism School. Nebraska (laughs) Journalism School. We were always like, What does Missouri have that we don't, except Brad Pitt? You know, he was a dropout Uh, anyway. Who dropped
1: out of the J school, (laughs) by the way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it's funny because I keep on thinking about this. Like back in in undergrad and in masters, when, when we were in these journalism classes, finance and economics was hardly ever brought up as an avenue to pursue in journalism, when you can take that, any sort of medium, any sort of journalism and kind of go with it. Econ was never really, it's always something you took so you could graduate. It wasn't something you could follow through with. Yes. Do you think that's changing at all? Or do you think more people are getting interested in this as journalists?
1: Well, yes. but, But let me start to absolutely emphasize your point, it's so true. I mean, it's it's weird, and I can't totally describe why things are this way. But you know, the business page, sort of writ large, or business journalism, has kind of been seen as a backwater. Like mm-hmm. the real glory was in covering government. Uh, you know, we think about all the president's men, Woodward Bernstein, White House stuff, and and I really take my profession to task in the sense that. A lot of business journalism, you know, these reporters feel like they're writing only for a business audience. And so it can feel very much like the sports page, like a, like an inside baseball kind of page. And, and I think we need to remember that, yes, we are writing about this. Investors care most, right, about this news. That's why the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times are just such darn good newspapers. Investors really care. They want to read about this stuff. They want to know what's going on. But we also have to remember we have an obligation to the public, like, to describe this stuff to the broad American public. So what I'm trying to say is I I agree with you completely that this wasn't promoted as sort of high-profile journalism, but it's super important. And I do think this is changing. I was interviewing this uh, very bright young woman named, I think her name is Claire Williams, and she covered Tyson Foods at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, where I used to work. Anyway, I remember her saying, you know, I kind of was apologizing, oh, you know, business news is sort of this backwater. And, and so, you know, she's a reporter in her early 20s. And she's like, are you kidding me? Business is the main story. I mean, for, for a generation of youngsters who grew up in the shadow of the great financial crash of 8 09, Who've, who've lived in this decade, who've watched all this economic turmoil, I, I feel like they think it's it's a huge story. So uh, I think there is more heat and gravity ar- around it now than there was when you and I, uh, I'm being presumptuous, I don't know how old you are, but like, you know, in the late 90s. Mm, uh, yeah. th- this was seen as just like, which stock is up, which stock is down kind of coverage.
0: Yeah. I, you know, when I was in school, the only thing anybody wanted to talk about was, uh, 9-11, war in Iraq, Afghanistan, Middle East. Yeah. That's that's the journalism school era that I grew up in, or I was educated in, really. The advent of social media at the same time, this new technology. So it, that's, yeah, it, it, my time period, finance, uh, the way global economies work was never really thought of as an avenue to pursue. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, let, I do want to, let's table the conversation about journalism here uh, for later in in the conversation here, Chris, because I do want to get to the book. Mm -hmm. Really, I I read this thing so fast. It was a page burner. So I've got a lot of questions for you on the ethos of this book. Um, Why did you set out to write this book? And can you describe what those early motivations were on how you found and dove into specific characters that you write about so eloquently?
1: Totally. Okay, so... This started for me, I can date it, to June 2016. I was working on another book, my previous book, about Koch Industries, K-O-C-H, the Koch Brothers Company. Um, and, and what I love about journalism is you just get to meet all kinds of fascinating people. And, and one of the people I was interviewing for this Koch Industries book, who's talking to me on background as like an anonymous source, really, really smart guy, he was deeply into the world of trading and, and deeply engaged with financial markets and a, and a super bright guy. And our first interview lasted 11 hours and, and the final five and a half hours of that, he, he was just like, okay, fine, Coke industries, whatever. I guess you're doing a book on that, but can we please talk about what's important now? And he wanted to talk about asset markets. Okay, so this is 2016. Mm. And this guy was extremely concerned with what he was seeing with elevated asset prices. And then he starts talking about the Federal Reserve Bank and quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, all this stuff that I knew was kind of going on in the background as a business journalist. I'd heard about quantitative easing. And, you know, I remember one time in 2012, this friend of mine who worked at Bloomberg was saying, can you believe what the Fed just did with quantitative easing in 2012? It's insane. And he kept trying to explain it to me, and I got to admit, I just didn't understand it. But with this interview in 2016, the scales fell from my eyes, if you will. I I, I was like, oh, my God, the Fed is doing things today that break the graph historically. The Fed has gone down a new road. It's doing these very unprecedented experiments. It's radically reshaping our financial system and our markets and our economy in ways that I didn't appreciate as a business reporter. And it was really, I came home from that interview, wrote a very, very long memo, became obsessed with quantitative easing, and almost immediately was like, I want to write about this so other people can see what I'm seeing. I really want to explain this but but that's not necessarily a book and you know you asked me about characters that's what makes a thing happen that's what makes a book and as I was initially researching quantitative easing I read that one of the key votes taken to initiate this experimental program this vote was taken in 2010 and the vote was 11 against 1 and I'm like well that's interesting that's not a vote of, you know, 8 to 3 or I mean 8 to 4 or whatever, 11 against 1. Who's the one person that voted against it? And that one person ended up being this guy Thomas Honig. I interviewed this guy a few times. He was a former senior f- official at the Federal Reserve. And th- and that's when I was talking to him, I realized, okay, this is a book. This guy's story, what he went through, what he experienced, that's what made it a book to me. So that, that, that's the evolution of the book.
0: So let's talk about Honig. That was one of the questions. I mean, it really, there's a number of characters in the book. Honig really is the central character throughout the story. <clears throat> you dive in a little bit of Ben Bernanke. You dive a lot into Jerome Powell, um, obviously. But Honig really is the key figure in this entire book. What was it about Honig that inspired you? Was it just his capabilities of dissenting?
1: Okay, so here's what inspired me. His, his capabilities of dissenting are the first headline that emerge about this guy. This guy was at the Federal Reserve for decades. Uh, he was the president of the Kansas City Regional Bank, okay? And, and that gave him a seat on the Fed's most powerful policy committee, the FOMC. And, and this guy, Thomas Honig, is best remembered for being a dissenter, voting no all the time. That was his reputation. Oh, this cranky, reflexive dissenter guy who was an ultra hawk on inflation, and oh, he turned out to be wrong, and he voted against these policies like quantitative easing and 0% interest rates. You know, when I started digging into it, the first thing that fascinated about me fascinated me about this guy is that... Uh, this caricature of him was a, totally incorrect. Okay. Uh, to understand why I'm obsessed with him, let's first like deliver the headline about why I got obsessed with quantitative easing. Uh, quantitative easing is money printing. It's the creation of new dollars. The Federal Reserve is the only institution in the world that can just create new dollars out of thin air. And in the first 95 years of its existence, the Fed created new money in sort of this slow and incremental increase. The, the line of new dollars gently slopes upward for a, for 100 years until the Fed has created a pool of $900 billion, which we call the monetary base. That's the base of the basic new Fed dollars, monetary base. So we could call that printing a trillion dollars over 100 years. That's what the Fed did. And then between 08 and 14, the Fed prints 3.5 trillion dollars, So now we're talking 350 years worth of money creation in about four and a half years. Step change. That's quantitative easing, huge money creation, while at the same time, as the Fed's printing all these new dollars, the Fed is holding interest rates at zero, okay? The Fed's other great power is it controls interest rates short-term through interventions, and... You know, the Fed usually kept interest rates at like 3 or 4% for 100 years mm-hmm. or, or more, you know, went up and down. Um, it went as high as 20% in the early 80s, but it was mostly around 3 to 6%. The Fed keeps interest rates pegged at zero for seven years. Okay, so we're talking about like remarkable, not easy money policies, hyper easy money policies. And Tom Honig, this guy from Kansas City was remembered as the one person inside the Fed who really tried to stop this. He he didn't just uh, give speeches against it, and he didn't just argue against it internally, as many others did, by the way. He voted against it. And when you go back and look at the record, you see that he wasn't just voting against it because he was worried it would create inflation. He was presenting these very nuanced arguments that these kind of hyper-easy-money policies would divide the rich and the poor. It would increase the income gap. It would create uh, risky and speculative lending. Uh, it would entrench the Fed in a permanent program of ever-accelerating money creation. Fascinating arguments. And what inspired me is I interviewed this guy, Tom Honig, a few times, and and I realized he represented... A kind of approach to american politics that i think is dead now and it's what i would call the kind of pragmatic eisenhower conservative like the small c conservative kind of guy who believes in a free market but who at the same time believes in regulated capitalism mm-hmm. you know who supported these kind of old school new deal bank regulations like glass Steagall, or you know uh keeping Wall Street on a tight leash, and and this sort of unhappy compromise between vigorous markets and government regulation, that's the sort of view this guy embodied. And and I said, you know, I really want to write about this guy. I want to capture this point of view. I want to capture this political approach. And I want to record his story of how he tried to stop these policies.
0: He was an academic, originally, wasn't he? Yeah, after some time in the military.
1: So he was born and raised in Fort Madison, Iowa, um, was an academic, um, studied economics at Iowa State University. He went to Benedictine College, which is a Jesuit school in Kansas. Then he serves in Vietnam, comes home and gets a PhD, a master's degree, and then a PhD from Iowa State University in economics. Yes. So academic, and then goes right from his PhD thesis to join the Federal Reserve as a Bank examiner, bank regulator, 1972 in Kansas City.
0: I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into this culture within the Federal Reserve of non-dissent, which really pictured Honig as you know the the one guy who's always going to dissent, disagree with everybody else. Which you argue it was certainly not the case. He did have pertinent reasons to dissent on QE. And we'll get some more into that and those key players. But really, the, this culture of non-dissent is quite fascinating to me. Because in a society, in a political culture, where all we do anymore is debate and disagree on everything. We could debate on which direction the wind's blowing mm. in any in any chamber of Congress right now. What is mm-hmm. it about the Federal Reserve than this culture of you You got to be, it, it's all or nothing. All of us are nothing.
1: Mm-hmm. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, So so Tom Honig spends uh, like 20 years inside the Fed as a bank examiner, but then he gets promoted, which was actually pretty rare. He gets promoted to be president of the Kansas City Fed in 1991. And that's when he enters the big leagues, if you will. And that's when we get to kind of discover the governing structure of the Federal Reserve that you're talking about. Okay? So... Quickly, the Fed is actually a network of 12 banks. Uh, it's sort of like built like the United States. It's a federated system of 12 banks with a governing body based in Washington, D.C., okay, and, the, and, and you've got a board of governors who runs the Fed, seven people, okay, seven people appointed by the president, approved by Congress. They all work together in D.C. in this nice building called the Eccles Building. So that's the board of governors. But then they've got this committee that meets every six weeks and makes the most critical decisions about what the Fed is going to do. And this committee is called the Federal Open Markets Committee, or FOMC. And now the presidents of these regional banks we talked about they sit on this committee with the governors. Okay, so we've got twelve voting members who meet uh, every six weeks. And when and when you hear like the Fed raised interest rates or the Fed cut, it's the FOMC making these decisions. Mm-hmm. So so Tom Hanig. Gets a seat on this governing committee in 1991, so he's going to DC every six weeks to help make these decisions. And when he starts, Alan Greenspan, the legendary Fed chairman, is 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 leading this committee. And then you know Greenspan is replaced by Ben Bernanke, and uh, Honig is there the whole time. One of the features of this committee, as you've pointed out, is that they do not. I don't want to say they don't allow, they just don't brook dissent. And and the reason why is is because this committee was was built to have a great deal of power, okay? It's 12 voting members. None of them are elected. None of them run for election. And and the central bank was created very intentionally in this way to kind of insulate it from democratic pressures. And and the idea was, okay, if we make this committee of 12 brilliant people, With good judgment, they can do two things. They can do things that are unpopular, first of all, because sometimes you've got to hike rates to fight inflation, for example, which can plunge the economy into a recession. So, if we give them a lot of power, unaccountable to voters, they can do the hard thing, do the unpopular thing. And, second, hopefully, they can think with a long term view. All right, they're not running for re election in a couple years. So, this gives this committee huge power. and rather unaccountable power. And, and over time, it evolves that this committee, every time they vote, they essentially want the vote to be 12 to 0, totally unanimous. Maybe they can handle 11 to 1. A 10 to 2 vote is like very touchy, very controversial. Oh my God, two people voted, no. And, and the reason, I think one of the fundamental driving reasons why is this committee needs the world to think that the committee is essentially uh, infallible, that that it's these very brilliant technocratic PhD Olympian figures who aren't necessarily making policy decisions. They're not engaged in the grubby policy fights of politics. They're just like solving math equations, and and that there's there's a twelve to zero consensus answer to the equation. It's very important for the Fed to project this to the world, that we know what we're doing, we're driven by consensus, and we are solid in our decisions. And so when Tom Honig went on this string of dissents in 2010, he was trying to shatter that image of of a committee that was just not making policy decisions, but solving math equations. He was saying, no, there's a debate going on. And, and there are people who don't agree with this track and I'm one of them.
0: Can we get, I want to talk about the beginnings of QE here and the, the pivotal position of Ben Bernanke, um, which was interesting before we, before we get to, to Ben Bernanke, I, I, I would also like to spend a little time talking about how, uh, Alan Greenspan really brought the federal reserve to, uh, I guess you can call it the mainstream media cuz he did all these mm-hmm. these press conferences that you know most fed chairs did not want to you know would opt out of or didn't want to do but he was willing to go out there in front of the cameras and the questions frequently which was then kind of adopted continued by Ben Bernanke. Uh talk about that evolution of the Fed coming more into the public uh limelight and really why Ben Bernanke was such a pivotal Force and getting QE uh, initiated here in the US? So,
1: wow. Greenspan was pivotal. I mean, he's probably one of the most important leaders at the Federal Reserve, other than Paul Volcker, who's the guy who hiked interest rates to like 20% in the 80s and stopped inflation. I mean, that was an extremely important thing that happened. But, you know, Greenspan served what like 17 years or something i mean he was he was the chairman for a really long time and he was i think it's fair to say greenspan was the first celebrity chairman of the fed and if if greenspan was really smart at one thing it it was politically cultivating his image as the all knowing all seeing oracle that like the 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 brilliant master of finance and what, what this did was it created not just a cult of personality around Greenspan, but this sort of cult of worship around the Federal Reserve itself, that this institution is all-seeing and all-knowing and doing things exactly right to keep the United States economy at this Goldilocks level of not too much inflation, not too little inflation, strong economic growth, uh, all at the same time. And To me, what I write about is I I think one of the key contributions Greenspan also made was this thing that we call Fed speak. Mm -hmm. Because yes, Greenspan would get up and, and do these congressional hearings, which were covered like... As if like Mick Jagger or some you know rock star was testifying in front of Congress. I mean, the whole financial International Financial Press Corps would cover every word Greenspan said. When he said something, the reporters would run out of the back of the room and send it out on the wires. But he 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 spoke in a very intentionally complex way that was opaque and hard to understand. They call it Fed speak. And I actually quote, just for fun, I quote a paragraph of Greenspan congressional testimony, which just it hurts your eyes and hurts your brain. It makes no sense. It is a hyper, utterly complex. And what what's interesting to me is that when Greenspan would talk behind closed doors inside the Fed leadership meetings, he wasn't nearly so inscrutable. He actually spoke in like plain English. So he was capable of doing it. But But the whole point of Fed-speak is it made it seem like the Fed policies were outside of the realm of mere mortals, that this was stuff that's like way too complex for you and me to understand, and best leave it to these PhD economists to handle. Okay, that's a huge trend going on at the Fed when Ben Bernanke takes over in 2006, following in Greenspan's shadow. And, um, you know, Bernanke did tone down the Fed speak a little bit, but it, it, it's so interesting to me that there's, there's sort of this collision in, in the sense that, you know, Bernanke is barely in the job a couple of years before the entire global financial system collapses in 2008. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the Fed starts to do things it has never done before. And quantitative easing represents the the passing of a boundary, uh, the expansion of Fed power, and a deepening of Fed intervention in our economy, the likes of which we've never seen. And all this stuff is happening with the continued kind of shadow of Greenspanism, meaning the, 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 the concepts are never explained to the American people in plain English. Uh, people are just sort of like letting the Fed do its thing over there it's it's not talked about in the news much actually include a lot of academic analysis of how the media covers the fed and the answer is like barely at all you know and and so what you see under Bernanke is is the fed is is truly breaking historical boundaries getting bigger than it's ever gotten before changing our economy more than ever but getting very little scrutiny. I mean, the thing we're talking about, the, the basic radical experimental program, the name is quantitative easing. Like, barely technically English. Quantitative easing doesn't mean anything to anybody. But if you say, hey, the Fed is, is creating a jobs program by printing more money than it's ever printed before at a more accelerated p- pace than ever, and we're going to try to achieve prosperity through printing money, well, that gets people's attention. And they're like, wait, what are you talking about here? You're going to triple the United States monetary base in three years? Oh, okay, why? You know, What do you hope to achieve through that? How do you think it's going to work? These were debates that didn't happen publicly when Ben Bernanke wasn't just the author of quantitative easing, but its greatest political champion who pushed it through.
0: It was quantitative easing something that spurred from the modern monetary theory that we hear so much about. And was that more of a theory that was shelved prior to the great financial crisis and then able to be implemented because of it? Or can you talk, maybe discuss where quantitative easing came from and why it took something like a market crash and the GFC to be implemented uh, with throughout the economy.
1: Okay, a great question. Uh, to start with, modern monetary theory comes later. Okay, and it's a it's like the stepchild of quantitative
0: easing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's
1: like. Honestly, my sincere take on it is that you have eight years of quantitative easing, which prints money at a level never done before. So then you have the school of academics who come in the shadow of that, like saying, well, maybe we don't even like need to tax people. I mean, maybe we don't even need to worry about how much we borrow. We can just print everything we need. And I think that that kind of the, the only reason that that theory can really gain traction is because we've been doing this unprecedented money printing for five or six years by that time. and 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 we got to be we never saw price inflation until after Covid. So the Fed was printing trillions of dollars. The critics were saying it's going to create price inflation. Not Tom Hannig, by the way. But uh, you know the mainstream critics in the right-wing media were saying that, and inflation never happens. So I, I feel like mon- modern monetary theory is sort of the stepchild of quantitative easing. Okay. Amazingly, quantitative easing, as best as I can see, traces back directly to Ben Bernanke himself. Hmm. This guy was an economist and a professor at Princeton, and he studied, as well-known, he studied the Great Depression. He was an expert in the Great Depression, and he was also a very aggressive monetarist, meaning he, in the 2000s at Princeton, was writing these wild, I mean, I my words, wild papers about what the central bank could do to expand its writ, to to expand what it does to affect the economy more directly. He uh came up, there's actually a great paper about this that I cite in the book, but he comes up with all these theories that, like, you know, you can keep interest rates at zero, which had never really been done. Uh, Interest rates had never been held that low for more than, frankly, like an instant. They brushed up against zero in the late 60s very, very briefly, but that's it. And Bernanke's coming up with these theories of, of how to keep interest rates at zero for years. So, let me please describe mechanically what quantitative easing is. This is what please. that guy and Okay. This is mind-blowing. This is what the guy explained to me in 2016 that made me say, oh, wow, okay. So the Federal Reserve has an actual trading floor in New York City that I've toured. And, and it's like any other trading floor you'd ever see at J.P. Morgan or whatever. It's a bunch of cubicles, a bunch of young people overworked uh, trading in financial markets. The Fed uses this trading floor to affect short-term interest rates. We'll just leave that to the side. But here's what quantitative easing is. Um, I literally saw the corner office where it takes place. A trader goes in, sits down at a computer, calls up J.P. Morgan and says, Hey, J.P. Morgan. I want to buy $8 billion worth of treasury bonds from you, okay? And J.P. Morgan says, okay, fine. Uh, Gives those treasury bonds to the Fed, so the Fed takes those bonds onto its balance sheet, and then the Federal Reserve trader clicks on the keyboard and says, okay, Mr. J.P. Morgan, look inside your special reserve account held at the Federal Reserve, your special bank vault at the Fed, look in there, boom, $8 billion just appeared out of nowhere. The Fed just created this eight billion dollars on a ledger inside J.P. Morgan's bank account. Quantitative easing is executing that trade over and over and over until you've created six hundred billion new dollars, as in the twenty ten round. You've created six hundred billion new dollars inside the bank accounts on Wall Street. Um, The Fed can do these transactions. With 24 selected institutions that we call primary dealers. It's JP Morgan, Goldman, Sachs, Wells Fargo. Mm-hmm. So, so what the Fed is doing here is flooding the banking system with new cash at the very same moment that the Fed is holding interest rates at zero. So there's a serious disincentive to like save this cash. You can't earn a yield by just stashing it in a 10-year treasury bond. So it's like forcing uh, toothpaste out of the tube. The idea is this cash will flow out into the debt markets, that you're basically forcing these banks to just do whatever they can do with this cash to earn a return. And so that's why in the financial press, all the time you see this this phrase, search for yield. There's all this cash in the banking system searching for somewhere to go where it can yield money for its owners. and And so that means these banks are pumping up asset markets that they otherwise wouldn't be playing in. They're buying assets they otherwise would not buy. So these big banks are buying uh, leveraged loans, uh, leveraged loans from corporations that are packaged up together into these instruments called collateralized loan obligations. The money is flowing into Facebook stock, Tesla stock, options on Tesla stock, commercial mortgage-backed securities. This cash is pumping up asset markets. That that was the key mechanism through which it would affect. It would pump up stock prices, bond prices, real estate prices, housing prices. And and what the Fed wanted to do was create a wealth effect. Um you know, it's I call it like ultra-trickle-down economics. It's like, okay, if the stock market is hitting record levels, that will second order effect, encourage companies to hire, or maybe these leverage loans will be used to fund plant expansions and the like. So sorry if that was way too long winded, but like that's what QE is. And Ben Bernanke was the author of this plan.
0: Well, I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned hypothetical or I can't remember what you exactly said, but the trickle down economics, because actually it had a reverse effect and you write about it a little bit in the book. And I don't want to give away all the stories in the book because I want people to actually read it. It's it's really incredibly well-written book, but this trickle-down economics on the uh, to the hest of QE actually had a, not the effect as one would think if you believe in these trickle-down economics, because because people are running on these leveraged loans, corporate bonds, they have more incentive to cut their their to to cut their line items, which usually comes in the form of wages. So they're trying to become as most profitable as they can because they're trying to resell that company to somebody else who would take over those take over those those loans, and so yep. you have reverse effects of what you know any politician in the last thirty years that goes up there and says trickle down economics this is how it works is the, I don't I, I don't I don't know if it's fair to say but at least in my mind they're full of shit because that's not how it works. It's uh, <laughs> a great way to put it, yeah, and. The
1: entire middle part of the book is called uh, The Age of ZERP, and ZERP stands for Zero Interest Rate Policy, which is what the Wall Street types use to talk about zero interest rates and quantitative easing combined. I'm trying to describe the economy you just described, and it's the one Tom Hanig warned us about when he voted against this stuff. He said, you are not going to be creating new jobs. You're not going mean, to... The, the job creation is going to be very small compared to the long-term risks you're piling up with this program. You're not going to be hiring people, building schools and educating people, building infrastructure. All quantitative easing did was pump up stock prices and encourage these financial... Uh, I don't want to use the word manipulation. These These sort of financial maneuvers... That make money um, using the low-hanging fruit of financialization. Okay, L- let me give two quick examples if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, all this stuff was extraordinarily well understood inside the Fed. I had the luxury of going back and rereading, you know, reading through all their internal debates, which the transcripts of which are released after a five-year delay. And in 2012, when the Fed was about to uh execute its largest round of quantitative easing in history to that point, there was this um, Fed official named Richard Fisher, who is the regional bank president from Dallas. And he's sitting here inside a meeting saying, okay, look, committee, I, he, I literally just got off the phone, Fisher said, with the chief financial officer of Texas Instruments. And the CFO of Texas Instruments told me that if we do another round of quantitative easing, Texas Instruments isn't going to build a new factory or hire a single new worker or invest one penny in research. They're going to use the cheap debt to borrow money in the form of a corporate bond They're going to use money to buy back their own stock to deliver money right to the pockets of shareholders and then just sort of incorporate it as structural debt into the firm because that is the kind of maneuver that's encouraged by quantitative easing because you're pumping up the stock price. So it's this incentive to buy the stock back and and deliver the money directly to shareholders, but you're not really changing in any of the like – Ground truth economic conditions, Uh, you know, I mean, for example, this old school like New Deal uh, Keynesianism that we saw after the Great Depression changed the ground truth economic conditions. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for better or for worse, was paying guys to go out and build roads or or, Mm -hmm. or, um, uh, trails in national parks or building dams. So that puts money into people's pockets that they're spending in the economy or you know they're putting their kids in school or the new road is creating new commerce. Quantitative easing is just pumping up asset markets and encouraging the assumption of more debt. So anyway, Richard Fisher says during this committee meeting, Texas Instruments is just going to use this cheap debt to buy back its own stock and not create a single job. And Ben Bernanke's literal response is... Um, Fisher, if you could please not use anecdotal evidence from people who don't have a PhD in economics, that would be better for this committee. We're going to look at our models and, and talk about how it works. So I think this these policies of quantitative easing, 0% interest rate, help us understand why the decade of economic growth from 2010 to 2020 was defined by stagnant wages, Stagnant economic growth, very weak economic growth, very weak productivity growth, but booming markets on Wall Street, booming, record-breaking stock prices, record levels of corporate debt, uh, very high prices for commercial real estate and all the rest of it.
0: I, I know it's hard to fast forward uh, eight years because uh, there's a lot that happened. There was a, a short period of time where they did try to raise interest rates. That was short-lived. Uh, But I really want to get to this idea of you mentioned how during the great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve under Ben Bernanke increased their their power and did things that the Fed had never done before, which was unprecedented at the time. Fast forward to 2020, and under Jay Powell's uh, uh, leadership, the FOMC gets struck with dealing with... uh, with COVID and the pandemic, the economy has to shut down. And was like Jay Powell said, you remember, you remember what Ben Bernanke did eight nine years ago? Hold my beer. Watch this. Yeah. <laughs> and they and they and, and they did they took it even further. I, it wasn't just putting money into the into those big banks accounts that had accounts with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve for the first time was putting money into people's into people's bank accounts, personal bank accounts.
1: In in a way, yes. Yes, they they I mean and and they were directly purchasing corporate junk debt for the first time in the history of the Fed. And and when you talk about people's checking accounts through the Main Street Lending Program, the Fed was purchasing bank loans, regional bank loans to mid-sized businesses. Um, the best way to put it is uh, one of the guys I interviewed for that part of the book is named Scott Minard, who's an investor at Guggenheim Investments. And, you know, he's one of these, like, tough, jaded, almost Wall Street-type guys who's a real bond market trader. These types of people were speechless. I mean, literally speechless in 2020 when they saw what the Fed was doing. And Minard is like a—he's an advisor to the New York Fed. And he was saying— the Fed has socialized the bond market, mm-hmm. but, but by by what they've done in in the sense that they have now expanded their safety net to cover corporate junk debt, something nobody thought would happen. But I, I guess if we could if we could back up for a second, you know, you're right that I try to describe this fascinating period before COVID hit, from like 2017 to 2019 to very early 2020, when the Fed was trying to normalize things, trying to pull back on quantitative easing, trying to hike interest rates just a little bit, from zero to like two and a half percent. And the economic system kept short-circuiting because it was so addicted to the easy money that whenever you pull the easy money away, the house catches on fire. And you either deal with the house fire or you keep pumping in the money. Mm -hmm. And so the Fed kept pumping in the money, and so... Our financial system, when COVID hit, was extraordinarily fragile. I mean, to be blunt, I think that's what the Fed doesn't want to talk about, is that they had made our our financial system fragile. Asset prices were what they call priced to perfection, meaning the, the price of a share of stock was priced at the most like optimistic possible assumptions about future revenue and earnings. It all came collapsing down when COVID hit. Um, Now, COVID was a once in a generation or more uh, economic catastrophe. We've never seen anything like that. But the fragility of the financial market created by the Fed made it a heck of a lot worse. And in, in March of 2020, Jay Powell, who was then chairman of the Fed, appointed by Donald Trump, Jay Powell does everything Ben Bernanke did after 2008. You know, Bernanke's actions took, let's say, ballpark one and a half years or at least one year that he rolled it out. Uh, Powell did all that stuff in a weekend. Yeah. It's right off the bat, cut interest rates to zero, did quantitative easing, did all these uh, exotic uh, money pumping uh, programs like called TALF and all all these things. And that still wasn't enough to work. And that was in March of 2020. And then in April, I think it was is, is it either April 7th or 9th of 2020, Powell pushed it further. I think that's the hold my beer moment. That's when Powell says, we're going to directly purchase uh, Main Street bank loans. We're going to directly purchase corporate junk debt and, and like securitize corporate junk debt. Uh, that's when everybody said, wow, we live in a different world now. Um one quick metric if i could mm-hmm. back when tom Honig was having these big debates and dissenting the fed's balance sheet stood at about 2 trillion dollars that um and when that's important because it's it 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 reflects the size of the fed's footprint in our economy when i talked about qe the more money you pump into wall street the more assets you bring on your books so, so the balance sheet increases okay right. okay the balance sheet is $2 trillion in 2010, which is really huge. It's twice the size it was before the crash of 08. By 2014, the balance sheet is $4.5 trillion, okay? 4.5 times as big as it was before the 2008 crash. Everybody's like, oh my God, $4.5 trillion balance sheet? That's insane. How could it be this big? we got to make it smaller. The balance sheet jumps during the COVID crisis, to nine trillion dollars and counting. Okay, it it what what Powell did after the COVID crisis it dwarfs anything that had been done ever. Uh, 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 it's hard to overstate it. The, these graphs showing the size of the intervention are just like a hockey stick, way way up. So yeah, so so I'm trying to say that the interventions of 2020 were dramatic. Um, more than doubled the Fed's balance sheet from its. I'm sorry, they they roughly tripled mm-hmm. the size of the Fed balance sheet from its already elevated level to to nine trillion dollars. So the Feds, and and again, I mean, this is one of the key things Honig warned about: is once you go down this path, there's really no easy way to
0: stop. It really doesn't matter who's president, which which party's in the in the White House either. This was all happening, uh, you know, started under Bush, went obviously through Obama. Uh, Trump, you know, I, I remember President Trump arguing for uh, lowering interest rates. And then obviously the first round of COVID, uh, COVID era QE was under his watch. And then we had now have President Biden. So, you know, can you express a little bit, you know, politi- the politicalization of of the Federal Reserve, does, does it know politics or is it, is it beholden to whatever president or party in the in the office?
1: Um, these issues we're talking about are deep structural things in the American economy that are embedded in the system regardless of which party holds power in the White House. Right. This is deep architecture. Um, and, and what I mean to say by that is the money printing and its effect on the most powerful financial institutions is a very large set of policies with inertia. Um, it really started, I mean, you can trace it back, just for the sake of keeping it simple, to Greenspan. And, and I walk through some of these policy decisions in the book. But you know, Greenspan was very pro-easy uh, money and it and and also they made this decision that they weren't going to worry about elevated asset prices that it was okay to jack up asset prices that led to the dot com bust of 1999 the housing bubble of 2000 and then into the obama era of the money printing under quantitative easing so yes this machine is moving in a direction and, and the sort of occupants of the White House come and go with only very limited uh, influence mm-hmm. on what the Fed is doing. And I mean, in a way that's by design, as we talked about earlier, the Fed is supposed to be insulated from um, these, these democratic forces. But if I could please make a point here that, that I think is important, it's a political dynamic to think of that is beyond red team versus blue team, which is so much of what our, like, cable news coverage is about. But one of the more important trends has been the sort of increasing paralysis and dysfunction of our democratic institutions. I I mean, you can be very conservative or you can be very liberal, but I think we can both agree, both sides can agree, that after the crash of 08, our, our democratically controlled institutions, like Congress, did not get under the hood of the American economy and start to address what was ailing us. Uh, we had no we had no response to the Great Crash that was anything along the lines of what the New Deal did after the Crash of 1929. So, our democratic institutions are kind of adrift. I, I would argue they're they're per paralyzed and dysfunctional. And so we leave more and more of the economic policy to the Federal Reserve, which it can move fast, it's not accountable to voters, uh, it can use its powers without restraint as it has done to print money. And, And so to me, the biggest dynamic here is that elected officials have been luxuriating or rather like exploiting the luxury of not having to do their jobs, to be blunt, and letting the Fed do the work of trying to drive growth through printing money. And uh, I think it's pretty clear we've reached the terminus of that kind of uh, plan. It doesn't work. The Fed wasn't built to drive our economy.
0: But yeah, it seems like that's what we have. Mm. If I might be so blunt, I mean, we now have a Fed put. We we have belief in the Fed put that if the markets Mm -hmm. turn, the Fed will bail us out. It's happened twice in the last 10, 12 years.
1: And and that idea is very difficult to get out of the heads of traders on Wall Street. Uh, the Fed put, as you said, is the idea that the Fed will step in and they won't let asset prices get below a certain level. And then, you know, that's expressed, that whole idea is expressed in this term, buy the dip. Right. If the market ever falls, forget about the fundamentals. Don't even look at what's happening in the economy just have faith that the Fed will step in if things get bad. So when you see the prices go down, buy the dip, because one way or another, the Fed's going to come in and solve the problem. And so that's just an article of faith. And and, and in my mind, for what it's worth, I think it's extremely dangerous because it's a herd mentality that we can start ignoring the fundamentals and keep pouring money into these stock markets, regardless of the fundamentals.
0: I, I, I do want to kind of focus on what we see now, like mm. this this year, twenty twenty two. You this book came out in January, <clears throat> mm. and I would expect that maybe, hopefully, you took some time, did some marketing on the book, spent some time with the with the family, and took some time off. But I, you know, after writing this book, getting it published, seeing the response from readers and media such as myself. And then also seeing what's really happening here economically with uh the Fed is winding down its asset purchases supposedly. Uh they want to raise interest rates although dabble their toes in the water by a quarter percentage point. Uh, we just got our CPI print this morning. We're hitting 8% inflation according to the government records. We could probably make the most of us would make the arguments well above in all realities, next month's Mm -hmm. going to be downright awful because everything that the supply crunches, price spikes that we saw from Ukraine and Russia debacle in Eastern Europe really hit in March. So Mm -hmm. next month's CPI for March is going to be quite extraordinary. How are you balancing everything you learned from your research and your writing and your interviews from this book? And what are you thinking about now in this present day era of inflation, when the Fed is really stuck? So,
1: um, I've just got to be honest, and this doesn't um, people don't want to buy books that make them upset. I get that, um, but i I am not in a um, very happy uh, mindset right now, in 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 the sense that. Um, I sincerely think we are in a a fragile, not great place uh, because of all these trends I talked about. Um, The the book ends rather open-ended, and and the message is not positive. But, okay, I'll I'll lay out where I think we are today and why it sometimes literally makes me queasy when I read the newspapers because I get so uh, concerned but at the, look, at the end of the day, I think it's very, um, I, I, I'm a deeply patriotic person. I very much believe in our country. We have so much inborn strength as a nation. Um, and frankly, I think a lot of that strength is sort of uh, emerging visibly today. You know, we're, there's just so much America's got going for it. But there are mm-hmm. also so many problems. Um and I guess what I'm saying there is that, like, let's at least look at this thing um, dispassionately, understand where we are today so we can put on our seatbelt and buckle up for this rough ride and get through stronger on the other side.
0: Right.
1: But, but what's the rough ride? Well, here it is. All the stuff we've been talking about, the Fed has been pumping up asset markets for a decade uh, with, with money printing. Um, don't take it from me. Read through the comments of the Fed officials, like the current chairman, Jay Powell, what he says internally, uh, you know, as long ago as 2012, is that when you pump up markets like this, they crash, okay? He called it a large and dynamic event, or you could call it a correction, but, you know, these asset prices can't stay this elevated forever. Now, we might have been okay if the Fed was given the luxury of time or a long runway to wind down these extraordinary interventions from 2020 with interest rates at zero and a balance sheet at $9 trillion. And and like, you know, we talk about quantitative easing, that fire hose became permanent. The Fed was pumping 120 billion a month into Wall Street after the COVID crash. The, The Fed would have been okay if it could have slowly and incrementally withdrawn the stimulus over a period of maybe five to 10 years, if it could do an interest rate hike of 0.25% and let its balance sheet shrink slowly and gradually over five years, it maybe could have happened in a soft landing way, as they like to say. But the problem here is price inflation. The numbers you're quoting are intense. Eight percent, let's call it 7.9, I think, right now. Um, the Fed was dead wrong about inflation, not just the past couple of years, but the past decade, as I show in the book, using their own internal forecasts. The Fed most recently was saying, oh, hey, you know, uh, inflation is transitory. It's going to go away. It's just like this temporary shock. Uh, that's not true. In- inflation is is getting embedded in the economic system. It's very strong. And not to be hyperbolic, but that kind of inflation, it's like a gun to the head of the Federal Reserve. It's saying, you no longer have the luxury of time, okay? You need to tighten quickly and dramatically. You need to hike interest rates from zero, where they've effectively been for about a decade. You need to bring them up to three or four percent. And you need to reverse quantitative easing and suck some of this cash out of the Wall Street system or inflation is going to, okay, you you need to tighten to stop inflation. That's one bad road because when they do that, the markets are going to crash. Like, let's just, why, uh, I don't want to pussyfoot around it. The markets are going to crash. The second choice the Fed has is don't make the markets crash. Don't hike rates. Don't withdraw the cash. But risk creating a price inflation spiral this eight percent inflation can can become embedded in our economic system and it can stoke these things we call inflation expectations where everybody expects inflation so therefore they ask for more money which raises prices and so on and so forth and then boom two years from now we're looking at a 1970s style you know 11 to 12 percent inflation rate so quite unfortunately because of what the Fed has done over the last decade, we're sort of in this position of no easy way out except through a bumpy road. That's where, and and on bumpy road is the euphemism. <laughs> I I, I would take
0: a bumpy road. Honestly, that sounds like a best case scenario. You know, a, a bumpy road is better than a downright crash. And a reset. Well, do you believe? Okay. Do you believe in a reset?
1: Well fascinating question and listen i try to be somewhat like constrained in my rhetoric although you know my book is called how the fed broke the economy (laughs) like let's not uh beat around the bush we're talking about a major financial crash um that could be highly damaging uh when i say bumpy road we're talking about a 10 percent unemployment rate and like I just want to reemphasize the point that social stability is extremely important. We're all Americans. Let's work together. Let's get through the hard times together. Um, our population has faced so many stressors mm. over the last decade. I'm not excited about the thought of 10% unemployment rate. Um, your question about the Great Reset is fascinating because the Wall Street people were using this phrase um, years ago, like 2018, 2019. And, and you correct me if I'm wrong. The way I first heard that phrase, it's almost like a debt jubilee kind of idea of wipe the bad debt off the balance sheet. Is that your understanding of great reset?
0: Yeah, that's part of it. It certainly is. And then also kind of reformulating not only debt, but also currency, specifically in the Western, in the, in the Western world. It's a a loaded, you know, when I first heard about it, it was very much, my take was, this is a little bit more conspiratorial than I'd ever get myself into. Mm. But that was probably, you know, that was a few months after March 2020, when we locked everything down. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, the the US and other countries have defaulted on debts before. It has happened. Uh, We... And the more I dig into this and read and understand where we came from, what we've done, the word unsustainable continues to pop open. So when you said mm-hmm. things could be a real bumpy road, that was actually very optimistic. <laughs> I, and and I'm not – and I'm, I don't think I'm a very pessimistic guy. Some people might disagree. Um, but – I do. I don't see how this is sustainable, and I wrote it in. I wrote about it in the newsletter this week, actually, about how at one hundred thirty dollars an oil, one hundred thirty dollars a barrel of oil, I'm now seeing people online complain about gas prices. We very well could see two hundred dollars a barrel. I don't know. I'm not an oil expert, but it's already becoming unaffordable. We've got metal prices that are unaffordable. So. Producers who need raw materials to produce their goods can't afford to produce their goods, and even what's out there, people can't afford to buy them because the raw materials have gone up. Uh, food inflation, wheat's gone up. God knows what twenty percent this week alone. I, don't quote me on that, but it's it's gone up quite a bit. Fertilizers have gone up. I mean, we are literally pricing people out of just about everything we need to live, especially the lower class, and that's what's really scary. We know we've seen hit times of history where this has happened. We know what responses have been. Uh, and it's, it's not great. Um, so I think my idea of a great reset is much different now than it was two years ago. Uh, is it unlikely? I don't know. But I guess I'm being a little bit more open-minded to it. So
1: man um we are living through well um, people always live through historic crazy times i mean in 19 what was the, was the great uh, cuban missile crisis 62 um, uh,
0: yeah i think it was what, <laughs>
1: 1962 yeah I, well,
0: my, my parents were 9 years old so
1: <laughs> yeah so they you know they almost got nuked i mean yeah. so uh, okay fine But this moment is um, fascinating. Uh, I I, uh, fully endorse everything you just said. And, And that's one thing, again, why I really wanted to write this book is to just get it down on paper that what we've done with the American currency is wildly aggressive and experimental, never been done. And I can tell you for a categorical fact The leaders at the Federal Reserve Bank are like people feeling their way through a dark room. They fundamentally change the rules of how to manage the money supply by doing these experiments. Um, And I don't really want to, the, the details are complex, they're in the book, but like the old rules don't work anymore. They're out the door. The Fed doesn't know why they didn't see inflation for 10 years, and they don't know why they're seeing it so strongly today. So we are in uncharted territory and kind of operating in this in this new level. So it's not unreasonable at all to expect we would see things we've never seen before in the future. I, you know, I, you know I'd, I'd like to point out quickly, like in February of 2020, I went to Barnes & Noble and picked up a book called Spillover by uh, David Quammen, a great biological writer. And he's right. he wrote a book about the dangers... Of novel viruses hmm. from animals at like, I don't know, the Wuhan wet market. Um, and and what I'm saying is you had a group of people in a certain discipline of science warning, hey, people, we could see a, a novel coronavirus that would fundamentally reshape the world as we know it. And it sounds like this like dramatic warning of sci-fi until you're locked in your house And the hospitals are full, and it's really happening. So, okay, fine. Um, Where we are with levels of debt and the currency is unprecedented. It doesn't mean there's going to be a catastrophe. But the word non-sustainable is apt. The level of debt, the, the price of these really important asset markets... Is, is very, very high. And, and the financial system's very, very fragile. So the next two years with very hot inflation and the need for the central banks to pull back, it's just going to be a wildly volatile time. There's no getting around it.
0: Uh, I did see on your Twitter, was it yesterday or a few days ago, that uh, you were out uh, getting some supplies to write another book. Yeah. <laughs> what what what's the, can you can you share a little bit what your what topic you're looking at? Um kind of yeah, I mean
1: I just love writing books so much and um it is what keeps me sane. Um to to be to be honest, I'm not trying to just say this. I've I have really enjoyed this conversation. Okay. It's maybe one of the yeah. best interviews I've ever done about this book. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Um but but there's a certain point where I feel I start to feel like a politician in the sense that I'm saying the same thing over and over and over and over again (laughs) and like it I'm much happier researching and reporting and talking to people and learning about a new thing and and struggling with how to put a book together and so you know I'm 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 starting on my next book and I'm, I'm looking as always at institutions. They're kind of at the heart of American power. The, the, the relationship between government and business um, you know, all all this stuff is, is really of interest to me. So um, I'm doing that, but I'm also keeping my eyes peeled on these issues of inflation. Mm -hmm. So my next book's not about inflation at all, but i'm 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 very much keeping my eyes peeled and you know one thing we haven't talked about is the role of the us dollar as a global reserve currency
0: you got another hour i know <laughs> but i will
1: i will quickly say uh, this is a i don't know about you but this is one of those periods where i just literally cannot miss the newspaper my newspaper wasn't delivered one day and i drove to the grocery store to pick it up cuz so much is happening the United States just froze Russia's dollar-denominated central bank reserve currencies. Epic change in economic warfare that really brings into question the role of the dollar as a reserve currency. Mm -hmm. Okay, so all this stuff is happening really fast and the financial system is ever-evolving. And so, yeah, I'm watching inflation, the role of the dollar globally, and things like that.
0: The... the Book is The Lords of Easy Money How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. The author is Christopher Leonard. I cannot recommend this book, uh, not only for yourself, uh, for your friends, for your family. It is a great read. It is not filled with jargon or nuance about the central bank in the U.S., that a lot of other previous books written on that topic have been. Uh, Chris, I really appreciate your time. Uh, Hopefully next time I'm in Kansas City, get together, uh, get one of those corn-fed steaks that I miss so much out of the Midwest, and uh, we'll sit down for a meal.
1: We got it. It'll be more expensive, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) maybe we can split the tab. Okay. (laughs) we play a credit
0: credit card roulette. How about that? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, That's a wrap for us here on Mining Stock Daily for this week. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll be back Monday morning with the news briefing. I'm Trevor Hall signing off for the weekend. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.